kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, it's good to see all of your, your faces this morning. I assume you're smiling, and I'm, I'm glad that you are here. I'm glad to be in God's house. What a wonderful privilege it is to sing about the greatness of our God. Let me start off a little differently than we normally start uh, our sermon this morning, and I'd like to start uh, by us all together um, reciting the Lord's Prayer. So will you join me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. <laughs> Amen. That's the Matthew version, Matthew 6, 10 through 15. Amen. Very familiar words to us all, right? Very familiar. A prayer guide for us as followers of Jesus. Very familiar. Sometimes we can forget what these words mean. Sometimes we can forget the significance of what we're praying. And as we're followers of Jesus, as his followers, what's the first thing that we pray for? What's the first thing that we ask for? After we honor him, after we hallow his name, what do we ask for? We ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Why do we start here? Why do we start for praying for God's kingdom to come? Well, we do so because it's why Jesus came to earth. And when he comes the second time, he is going to fulfill that kingdom completely. Remember the announcement at the start of the ministry? We just heard it in the video. Mark 1.14 says what? Now after G John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The time is now. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus is here to usher in the kingdom. He's come to establish his rule and reign and to bless all the peoples of his earth. That's what his kingdom is. It's where he rules and where he reigns and where he blesses. Now the thing about a kingdom is you can't have one without a king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And our text this morning is the longest continuous story in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's no coincidence that it's the longest story, because Jesus is coming here to say, the king is here. The king is here. He is going to show himself, he's going to establish himself as the conquering king, who blesses as he comes. You know, in a couple months from now, um, knowing Pastor Kenton, I can almost guarantee at some point in this room, we will be singing at the top of our lungs, the third verse of joy to the world. Anyone know the third verse off the top of their head? Let no more sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. Those words from this wonderful hymn declare the truth about the king and his kingdom. He has come to conquer the curse. And that's what we're going to see happen. And he's come to make his blessings flow upon us, 
That's what he's announcing and acting upon in this chapter. We're going to see his complete rule and complete reign over this world. And we're going to get a small taste of the blessings that he's preparing to shower on humanity. So, Chapel Street Church family, let's open our hearts this morning to see this king, to see who he really is, and to hear what he is calling us to do today. And let's pray for the courage to follow him where he leads us. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let's remember the context. Now, our setting is the Sea of Galilee. A lot of Jesus' ministry started this, the Sea of Galilee. It's a, it's a small, it's a large lake at the, uh, the northern end of Israel. And what's going to happen is we're going to be going back and forth across this sea to both sides. And at the end of chapter 4, Jesus asked his disciples, after a lot of ministry on, on the Jewish side, he asked his disciples, to take him to the other side. And what happens in the middle of, that, of, the, of the, the sea, which these disciples were fishermen and they knew so well? Well, a giant storm comes up. It's so giant, in fact, that these, these uh, fishermen, these experienced fishermen, begin to panic. And they wake Jesus up in a panic and say, Jesus, what are you doing? And in the midst of the storm and the fear, they, they wake him up. And look at what Jesus does. Look at Mark 39 and 41. Mark 4, 39 to 41, just a, one chapter back. And this is what Jesus did. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Who is this? Who is this? And Jesus is going to answer their question emphatically and completely in chapter 5. He not only has the power and the authority over the raging storms of creation, no, he has power and authority over the raging hordes of hell. He has power and authority over the discord and the suffering of disease, and he has power and authority even over death itself. So here's what I hope comes into focus for us all this morning. Here's what I hope comes into focus. Because Jesus is the king who comes in power, we're going to see this same pattern repeated over and over. Because Jesus is the king who comes in power, his power confronts and conquers all opposition. As far as the curse is found, he will destroy all opposition to him. But at the same time, beautifully and wonderfully and hopefully for us, his power comforts and cleanses and saves the desperate. And then we're also seeing, we'll see that his power demands a response. We can fear, or we can have faith. So we're going to see three stories, one king, the same outcome. So let's jump into the stories. Let's look at Mark chapter 5. And because this passage is so long, I'm just going to ask you to leave your, your Bibles open. I will be referring to specific verses. Look down and read those verses as we go along. But we're going we're gonna to try and jump in the story. And I want us really to feel this story, to imagine ourselves and put ourselves into this story. So let's, let's jump in. So first of all, where are we? Well, we are on the other side of the lake. We're on the east side of the lake. Jesus has, has gone across. The storm has, has, uh, has um, been miraculously subdued. And we're on the other side of the lake. And you could say this is the wrong side of the tracks. This is a place where the Jewish people are, are commingling with the Gentile people. 
That's where unclean animals were produced, and there's probably some Jewish people who were producing these unclean animals. They were being eaten. This was a place that was unsavory and unclean to any uh, Jewish person of the day. And yet Jesus went there. Why? Why? To make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The other side of the Sea of Galilee deserves to hear about God's kingdom. And he's going to demonstrate his power to rescue and, re and, and re regenerate the desperate and the tormented, even if it's just one seemingly insignificant soul. Jesus is giving his heart away as a king. So let's see what happens. Look at verse 2. Right as they step off the boat, they're confronted by a wild man, by a maniac. And look how he's described. Look at, verse, look at, look at how he's described, verse 2 after. He has, he has an unclean spirit. He was possessed and he was under the control of demons. He lived out in the tombs. And no one could bind him. No one could control him. He was out of control. He was sleepless and tormented. Day and night he would scream and bellow, bellow, and he would actually mutilate himself in his agony. According to Jewish law, he was a four-time loser when it came to being unclean. He had an unclean spirit. He lived in a cemetery. He lived among the Gentiles, and he lived within sight of pigs. He was as desperate and tormented and outcast as you could get. And his primary tormentors were demons. Talk about a curse. One commentator described him as being tormented by the focused powers of hell. Well, speaking of hell, I think it's important for us to take a moment and unpack this idea of what Satan and demons are in the Bible. I love what C.S. Lewis writes at the beginning of the Screwtape Letters. He gives this uh, quote when it comes to how we should think about, the, uh, about demons, or how we should not think about demons. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race falls about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician in the same delight. So we must be careful when we consider demons, right? We're not to disregard them, but we're not to give them too much regard. So what do we do with this Satan and his demons? Well, we need to view them like Jesus does, and we need to understand what the Bible has to say about them. So really quickly, let's talk about Satan. Jesus believes Satan is real. The Hebrew word for Satan means adversary or opponent. We know from Scripture that he fell from heaven in, his, in pride, and now he stands against God's person and purposes in the world. He's been granted power in the earth. John 5, 19 says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Jesus himself calls him the prince of the world in John 12. But through the cross, he is defeated, and he is desperate. He knows his fate, and he hates humanity, and he wants people to join him in everlasting torment. And while he's the ultimate opponent to God and the demons do, and the demons do his bidding, I want you to hear this. He is not equal with God. He is a created, finite being. He is a liar, he is a mocker, and he is a destroyer. And Jesus, the conquering blessing king, has come to oppose the opposer and destroy the destroyer. And look how Jesus confronts and conquers the opposition of Satan's minions, the demons. Look at verses 6 through 12. First we see the, the demons, what do they do? They acknowledge him. They say his title. They know his power. They know who he is. 
They're also honest with him. They, don't, they, they, they speak very clearly and quickly and tell him the truth. They answer truthfully. They know his position. And they plead and they beg with Jesus. They know his power. And ultimately, they can't even abide in his presence. They know his perfection and his purity. This legion, now a Roman legion was about 6,000 men, so we don't know how many demons were present in this man, but we know that it was a multitude. These, this legion of demons, they gave this man superhuman strength, but they wrecked his humanity. That's what demons do. But what does Jesus do? He makes the demons bow and cower in his presence. And the funny thing is, the confrontation is really over before it begins, right? How does it end? With just mere words. He sends the legions of demons into a nearby herd of pigs, and they, the pigs go over a cliff. Now, what a scene. We read those words, but think about that scene. 2,000 pigs go over a cliff because Jesus said, said be gone. That is the power of this conquering king. You know what? It also pictures the final fate of demons. Satan is going to be bound and thrown with his demons into the lake of fire in, Re in uh, Revelation 20. You see, Jesus' defeat of Satan's power in this earthly ministry foreshadows the ultimate victory he will have over them in the cross, something we're going to celebrate at this table this morning. And it also foreshadows the final victory he will have over all opposition at the end of time. Speaking of what happens at the end of time, if you would just turn real quick with me to Revelation 19, to the back of your Bibles. Now the book of Revelation does this, this, uh, has this building through the whole book where opposition to God and his purposes and his ways grows and grows and grows and becomes bigger and bigger. Both, uh, both human and demonic uh, power are, become really huge by this point in Revelation 19. And we have a climax when the opposers are going to oppose God and they are going to, to come, they've, they've come to defeat him, right? But look at what happens. Look at what happens um, at this climactic battle at the end of time when, when there's the final opposition to uh, Jesus and his authority. Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The king and the, the, king and the beast are the, are the greatest opposers there ever has been in history, there ever will be. And then look at verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in the present had done the signs of which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and we can go on. Folks, the battle is over between verses. There, there's no mention. Nothing happened. I had a professor in seminary who described it this way. He went up to the board and he spent a couple minutes going through the whole book of Revelation explaining how big and how powerful that, uh, this opposition had become in the world. And he said, all Jesus does is go like this. And he put a little tiny uh, speck on the whiteboard. And he said, Jesus comes and the greatest power on earth, all the demonic power combined, and he goes, Poop. That's the Jesus of Mark 5. That's the Jesus that we were singing about today. We were talking about his greatness. And, and talking about his greatness, let's get a picture of this Jesus. Look at uh, Revelation 11. Just look a couple uh, verses beforehand. And look at this description of who Jesus is. This is the Jesus of Mark 5. This is the Jesus that we worship today. Then I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. 
And in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name upon which he is called the Word of God. Skip down to verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword for which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress to the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written, has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is a picture of Jesus today, right now. And what we see here is a foreshadowing, is is an ushering in of his kingdom. He's saying, look, my disciples, I have complete control. As far as the curse is found, I have come to turn it around. He is conquering. He has conquered. He is conquering, and he will forever conquer. But also, let's not forget, he's come to conquer all opposition. At the same time, he's come to comfort and to cleanse and to save. Look at verse 15. Now the herdsmen were terrified. They ran back to the village and, um, and they come back with the villagers and they find the raving, maniacal man who had tormented them. They find him in this, this condition. Look at verse 15. He's sitting. He's in complete control. He's clothed. His shame is covered. He's in his right mind. He had been made right. And what a, what a picture of what Jesus does for us all. Isn't it? We're lost, we're tormented, we're ashamed. And in his mercy, he cleanses us, he makes us right, and he takes control. And Jesus did what no one could do or what no one could believe could be done. You see, not only does he calm the raging storms of the sea, he conquers the raging hordes of demons and a rescued and restored man by his power. The king has come. And brothers and sisters, if Jesus can do this, he can calm any storm and conquer any power in your life today. Hear that. But remember the pattern we talked about. Jesus comes in power, and that means that he demands a response. Let's notice the different responses that Jesus receives here. First from the frightened, onlooking villagers, and then from this restored man. Well, what do the villagers do? Well, they... The herdsmen saw the pigs go over the cliff, and they run away in fear. And they come back, and they see the man in his right mind, and they're, they're afraid again. What do they do? They, they, they beg him to leave. Well, it's good that we pause here and ask the question, why? Well, let's be fair. I, I think there's a healthy reflexive fear, right, of, of seeing the seemingly impossible happen right before their eyes. I'm talking about the man being restored, but also the pigs going over the cliff. That's a a pretty big picture to take in. But at the same time, their concerns were self-centered. You see, if he can do that, what might he do to me? This man has cost me too much already. I I don't want to lose anything else. This isn't worth it. Jesus, I, I can't have you around. Self preservation is their primary motivation. So they politely asked this conquering blessing king to go. They were afraid. They were afraid of a man possessed by demons who tormented them, but they were more afraid of Jesus, the man who freed them for the tormentor. 
they had their eyes on the wrong thing. They were looking at what they would lose, not what they would gain from this conquering king. See, the conquering king brings fear, but he also relieves fear. And look at how he relieves fear, and look at how he gives faith. The tormented man is now healed, has a completely different response, right? Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. What did he do? Jesus, let me stay with you. Let me stay with you. But Jesus wants to make sure we get this lesson, and his disciples get this lesson. You see, Jesus, the conquering blessing king, doesn't just heal us for our own good. He heals us for his sake. He wants his healed people to help grow his kingdom. So anyone who has been touched, anyone who has been changed by the conquering king, isn't just saved. No. They are sent. We're not just saved when Jesus touches us. We are sent. This was true of the man, of unclean, uh, man with unclean spirits, right? Look at verse 19. Think about this. He was commissioned by Jesus to tell his friends what the Lord had done for him. He was the first apostle to the Gentiles, not Paul. He was sent by Jesus to go tell his friends. And that's what Jesus is doing for all of us today. The power of the conquering king confronts us all and demands a response. And we also need to be honest, this isn't a one-time confrontation, is it? It's a daily thing. Every day we who have been healed and who have been saved have a choice. How will we respond to Jesus? One response is fear. The focus, the focus is on what might he do to us. And we send Jesus away. We pursue our own purposes. And the other is a response of faith. And what, what is the focus? Look at what Jesus did for me. I was lost, but now I'm saved. I was blind, but now I see. And instead of sending him away, we are sent by Jesus, and we join him on mission. And that's the call for us all today, isn't it? And every day. Jesus' power confronts and conquers all opposition so we can rest. Jesus' power comforts and cleanses and saves the desperate. We can rejoice. Jesus' power confronts us all and demands action. We need to respond and we need to go. Well, having confronted and conquered the power of Satan and his demons, now Jesus is going to turn his attention to the other great curse opponents of the human race, disease and death itself. He wants his disciples to get this message clearly. So look at verse 21. Now the setting has changed. We've crossed back over to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And again, he's met by a great crowd. And let's remember, these crowds aren't coming to Jesus in faith. They're coming to see the spectacle. They're coming to see the show. What is Jesus going to do next? It's not, it's not, I have a need. What can Jesus do for me? It's what can Jesus do next? How can he entertain me? But in this, on this side of the uh, sea, we're, the story is going to turn to two very different but equally desperate people. And it's important for us to see that Jesus has come to reach everyone, no matter your lot in life. The first desperate person we see is in verse 22, Jairus. We're going to look at Jairus. Now, he was a man of prominence, right? He was a leader in the synagogue. Most likely he was a Pharisee, and he was believed to be the, 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 the head ruler here. And basically what he did was he organized all the services. He set up and conducted the services. He was a man of wealth, and he was a man of great prestige, but he was a man 
of desperate need. Read further down. What was, what was going on? His youngest daughter, his young daughter was dying. The, the, the text makes it clear she's literally at death's door. Every second matters now. Now put yourself in the scene. Jesus has come back. This itinerant preacher has come back. This, this, this boy from a, a, who is a son of a carpenter in Nazareth, this young man who's teaching and doing things that were seemed impossible. Now Jairus, who's this, this man of, of prestige and, and honor in his town, comes and, and, and he looks at Jesus and he knows he's, he's not big, a big fan of Jesus. Most likely he wasn't. Jesus was an outsider. He'd been accused of heresy. He's been stirring up controversy everywhere he went. And yet there's Jairus in his moment of desperation, the spiritual leader of the town, bowing at the feet of Jesus, desperately pleading for the life of his daughter, asking Jesus to heal her with his touch. Now, we all, we all can sense that, right? If it came to our children, of course we would, we would do anything we could. But he is coming. He's coming to Jesus. And it's important for us just to get an idea of what this picture looked like to everybody else. Just imagine for one second if Pastor Jeff or, or Rusty Bland, the chairman of our executive council, fell at the feet of some uh, street preacher outside. That would be shocking to us. That would, that would get our attention. What is going on here? It's a jarring picture. Now imagine the hushed silence that falls on the crowd, right? When Jesus, this conquering blessing king, who is going to beat all opposition, the one who came to comfort the, the desperate, what does he do? He sees the genuine but imperfect faith of, of Jairus, and he agrees to heal his daughter. So imagine the scene now. Jesus says, let's go. The crowd erupts. They all press in, in and they all start heading for Jairus' home to see this, this king confront and heal the great human opposer of disease. But suddenly, in the midst of this crowd, we are, we are introduced to the next very desperate person. And oh, how different is her life than that of Jairus. Look at how her life is described in verse 25 and 26. Now, as much as the man uh, who was on the other side, of the, the other side of the Sea of Galilee was tormented by demons, this woman is just as tormented by disease. Look at this picture of her in verse 25 and 26. She must have felt hopeless. It had been 12 years that she struggled with this issue of bleeding. And she must have felt terrible. She must have been weak and anemic, right? From the loss of blood. And she lived with incredible shame. You see, back then, disease was often viewed as a result of personal failings or, 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 or hidden sin. And, and worse than that, she was considered ceremonially unclean. She was viewed as a leper. She was cut off from all social and religious activities. And like a leper, she would have had to always announce her uncleanness whenever she went out. She was that lady in the town. Feel her desperation. She was alone. Her husband was most likely had divorced her or she was never married. And she was cut off from contact from all people. And to make matters worse, she was destitute. She had spent all she had on cures. And again, like, like the man who was possessed by demons, she was an impossible, incurable, hopeless case. But not for Jesus. 
And in her desperation, and in the midst of the chaos of the scene, what does she do? She breaks all the rules. Because she wasn't supposed to go near people, or let alone touch people. And what does she do? She squeezes her way among the people to reach out and touch the conquering blessing gate. And she does it. And immediately she's healed. Immediately. She knows it. Think about that moment. She touched Jesus. She was made whole. What a moment. Only she and the game knew it. But now think about this moment. What happens next? When it turns to dread, what happens? And why would Jesus do this? He does it very importantly because he wants to teach his disciples something very important. What, what happens? He says, who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? Now all of a sudden, the joy would have turned to dread because she knew she was going to be found out, right? Now we have to give the disciples a little bit of a break at this point because, because Jesus was surrounded by people and he's saying, who touched me? Well, Jesus, you're being touched by dozens and dozens of people in this chaos. Why are you even asking this question? But that's not what Jesus is getting at. Remember I talked about that touch that she had? The church father, Augustine, makes this comment about the scene. The flesh presses, but faith touches. The flesh presses, but faith touches. People were pressing on all sides. They were pressing in to see the show, to take in the spectacle. But in the midst of it, there was a desperate, developing faith that led to his, somebody touching him. And it stopped him in his tracks. Only you can help me, Jesus. I'm going to risk everything to reach you. Now think about it. Another hush falls on the crowd as, as that woman comes forward and details all of her desperation. Imagine, imagine the shudders and the murmurs that must have been, been started. She, she touched Jesus? Did, did she touch me? Unclean. She should know better. Jesus is going to tell her. But that's not what the conquering came to do. He came to bring his blessings and let them flow as far as the curse is found. What does he say to her? Look at Mark 4, 34. Daughter, daughter, welcome to the family. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Your faith has made you well. She had been made well. The Greek word here means that she has been made physically and spiritually well. She had been healed. So what made her well? This is important for us to stop and consider. It wasn't exactly her faith. Faith doesn't do the healing. The object of her faith did that, right? She had been fully healed and restored by this conquering blessing king. You see, sincere faith is the conduit by which God has chosen to bring a healing to all desperate people. Let me say that again. Sincere faith is the conduit by which God has chosen to bring healing to all desperate people. May we never trust in our own faith more than we trust in the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Her torment is over. She can go in peace. And just like the demon-possessed man, she leaves fully healed, fully restored, fully saved. What a beautiful picture and story, right? But, but, but wait, wait. Jairus is over here. Jesus Jesus, what, what's, what are you doing? What, what, my daughter is dying. 
Every second matters. Jesus, what are you doing? And look at verse 35. As if on cue, when this woman is healed of all of her disease, he hears word. It's too late. She's gone. No need to bother the king anymore. Again, put yourself, I'm a father of four daughters, put yourself in the place that Jairus had been. What hope he must have had that that the conquering king was coming to his home to heal his daughter. Now his daughter's gone. All's lost and it's over. And in that moment, in that moment, there's no sense of time. What do we see? Verse 36, Jesus looks him right in the eye and says what? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. What a word from the conquering king who has come to bless us all. What a word. Do not fear, only believe. The king had other plans. He was about to display his power over the final great opponent, death itself. He wanted his disciples to see this and get it, that he had come to end death. He's not going to just show how great he is. He's going to bless and comfort Jairus in ways that he never thought possible. So again, continuing in verse 30, what does Jesus do? He stops the crowd and he takes his inner circle and Jairus and the head of the ho- they head to the house alone, right? But again, we walk into another big commotion. There's professional mourners at the, at the home. Their Jewish law required that you would have at least two mourners and one flutist come to your home at the time of the death. We don't know all the reasons why, but it, um, it was meant to indicate that, that there was somebody who had passed. And what were they doing? They would be playing the, their instruments loudly. They would be wailing and crying. See, these folks were professionals when it came to death. They knew when somebody was dead, right? But Jesus was going to change their mind. Look at verse 39. Jesus confronts them and he questions them. He says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Why are you mourning? Now, like the disciples in the crowd, we probably need to give these folks a little bit of a, a room here. Again, they had been around death. That was their profession, right? But they didn't understand the power and the blessings that come from this, this king. It's important to know that Jesus wasn't saying, hey, um, she's alive. He's not saying she's alive. She was dead. But he was pointing to something much more deeper and much more important. Real death is the separation of the the soul from God. Let me say that again. Real death is the separation of the soul from God, not just the body from the soul. And she was not separate from God. Jesus was there. Jesus was there. She was not lost. She would be raised from the dead, not just healed from disease. Continuing in verse 40. So knowing the mourners had lacked faith, Jesus sends them out, and in verse 41 captures what he did. Taking this dead little girl by the hand, she says, he says to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, Immediately, just like the demon-possessed man and the disease-suffering woman, she is restored, and they are amazed. And in this longest story portion in the Gospels, 
we have this culmination of four scenes, including the storm. Four great cursed opponents are, are conquered and, and, and confronted. Disease and demons, disease and death. The disciples are saved from the storm. Three people are saved and healed and, and restored. Much fear is produced. Much fear is relieved. Fear was given into and small steps of faith are acknowledged and are immeasurably rewarded. That is the picture we get of King Jesus from Mark 5. When we think about the call to follow the king, this is Jesus saying, I am the king. My kingdom come. My will be done. He came to conquer and he did conquer, conquer all opposition. And he comforts the desperate and the oppressed. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us today as followers of Jesus? Well, I want to say there is no power that Jesus cannot conquer. There's no opposition from the curse that he cannot conquer and overcome. If Jesus can be, beat and, and, and conquer and, and overcome disease, death, and demons, don't think there's anything in your lives that he cannot overcome. So we can rest in that. And we can take to heart his words, fear not, believe, and trust in him. But also, just as important as the fact that Jesus came to conquer all opposition, there is no brokenness that Jesus cannot comfort, heal, and restore in your life today. You know, you're never too unclean to come to him, and you're never too unclean to keep coming back to him. In these stories, Jesus did the unthinkable for a rabbi. He was in, in, a, in a cemetery among the tombs. That would make him unclean. He let himself be touched by a, a woman who was diseased. And he touched a dead little girl's hand. You see, when Jesus comes in contact with uncleanness, he never becomes unclean. The unclean become clean. And that is what Jesus continues to do for us all today. All of those who are desperate and unclean, who come to in faith, will find healing and comfort and salvation. The other thing that we don't have to worry about is the, the quality of our faith. Your faith doesn't have to be perfect to come to him. Think about it. The, the woman's faith was probably the little superstition. If I just touch him, I'll be, I'll be healed. And Jairus was there out of desperation and self-preservation in a sense, right? But they believed that Jesus was the conquering king. And Jesus rewarded their faltering, imperfect faith. And he wants us to come. He wants us to come. He calls us to come and be healed. He calls us to come and be cleansed. He wants us to live out the lyrics that Char Charlotte Elliott so famously penned in 1835, just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict and many a doubt, fighting and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. That's what Jesus wants. So we can rejoice in that and we can run to him. There's no power that Jesus cannot, uh, cannot conquer. So we can rest in that. There is no brokenness that Jesus cannot comfort, heal, and restore. We can rejoice in that and run to him.
Finally, there's no desperate place that he won't go to reach someone. Brothers and sisters, no one is hopeless. No one is above his power to save. Nothing we can do will separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. So remember that. Repent. Turn and follow Jesus. And join him on his mission. Bring this message to others. The conquering king has come in power. He has established his kingdom. And his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. It has come and it is coming. He inaugurated his kingdom in his first visit on earth. And he will finish it when he comes again. We heard the future of the conquering king right in Revelation 19. How he's going to destroy all opposition. Now hear the blessings of that same king that he will bring to his people in Revelation 21, 3 through 4. It says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for, for the former things have passed away. One day Jesus will conquer all opposition for good. And one day Jesus will bring perfect comfort and complete salvation to his people. That is my hope through my faith in Jesus. And that is your hope through your faith in Jesus. But one last thing I want to make sure we consider. We live in this delay. Just like Jairus, don't we? We're all desperate. We've seen Jesus conquering power. But it's not kept us from pain and suffering. Jairus' daughter was saved, but she would eventually die, and so would Jairus, right? What do we do with this? September 15th um, marked uh, the one-year anniversary that my family lost my youngest sister, Catherine, to cancer. She was 46, and she left behind four adopted daughters and a loving, uh, loving husband. She died a horrific death. Horrific. But she died well. She pointed others to the kingdom. And during her funeral, my mom, who, like, like Jairus, had lost her daughter, said this. My mom, at the time she shared, the end of her sharing, she said, I'm looking forward to the time when we can see each other face to face again because he lives and has said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what Jesus was acting out in Mark 5. I am the resurrection and the life. And I know that this is a short space in time. And soon and very soon, we will see each other again. I love you forever, Mom. My mom's pain at losing her youngest daughter way too early has not subsided. And it's something that's going to scar her until she's called home. But she knows the conquering king. And she knows that death has been conquered. And she knows the healing, comforting touch of her blessed, blessing king. And she can face the pain of delay because she knows that it will be the way it is supposed to be one day. That is true for her and that is true for us. 
all because Jesus came to establish his kingdom, to rule and to reign and to bless all those who are his by faith. That is the message of Mark 5. So Jesus meets us where we're at in our uninformed, unimperfect, and faltering faith. He wants you to come, no matter where you are. He wants to meet you and to touch you in your pain. And he tells you and he tells me this morning and every day, fear not, only believe. We don't need to question his timing. We don't need to wonder why some are healed and some aren't. We need to know and rest and rejoice in the fact that this conquering, blessing king will start what he finished. Will finish what he started. And by faith, we'll be with him when all opposition is conquered and all disease is healed and death is no more. Brothers and sisters, fear not only believe. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your table and remember your work for us, we praise you for your sovereign goodness. Father, we thank you for your control over all things. Lord, may we worship you now in spirit and truth as we come to your table. May we come soberly and may we come freely and rejoicingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.